I think it's important for us in our evangelism to understand that many of us have stopped evangelizing because we're worried about being labeled as a fundamentalist. But if we can understand first and then help other people to see through this story we're telling that mm. evangelicals are different to fundamentalists in that they're not politically active, they're just interested in someone's personal salvation. Welcome back to the Third Space Studio and the Shock Absorber Podcast. Uh, it's great to have you along with us, whether you're listening or watching. Uh, if you do hear a slight uh, fuzzy noise, that is because the rain is falling on Sorrel Church here at Kiriwi. Um, but uh, hopefully it'll hold off. At least we're clean and dry. And speaking of two clean and dry individuals, <laughs> I, have, I have Tim and Stu joining me here in the studio again. How are you guys? Yeah, good, man. Yeah, well, thank it's you. Excellent to have you along. Uh, Again, we continue our series in Whatever Happened to Evangelism. And last week we looked at the kind of the 40s and the 50s with you, Stu. Uh, Billy Graham and John Sott are the two, two major figures that we looked at. And now we're going to look at, continue on and look at uh, really some periods of time, especially in America, that shaped um, church as it is today. Uh, and times like the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. But as always, we like to start with a story and cultural artifact. And we have named the cultural artifact being a twisted sister song called we're not going to take it now uh why have we chosen this guys and can you uh educate me on why you don't have the hair of the guy <laughs> d snyder from twisted sister yes my hair is uh not as voluptuous as d snyder's it's hair from beautiful twisted sister you're probably the closest you. though out of all of us that's probably true actually yeah, yeah, yeah. grown out a little bit longer <laughs> that is true and i have had times where my hair's gone below my shoulders so that's true <laughs> i'm from the, the 80s and 90s um so yes joel uh d snyder wrote a song called We're Not Gonna Take It, which was an anthem uh, in the 1980s of uh, youthful rebellion. Mm. And it was a terrific song. It was one of those early MTV hits. So when MTV first came on the scene, MTV was actually a TV uh, program, uh, cable program that actually did actually broadcast music mm. clips, music video. And it really revolutionised the music industry. Um, you almost couldn't sell a record unless you had a really good film clip. And the attendant film clip with We're Not Gonna Take It was Dee Snyder singing the song and some kid getting really angry at his parents and his parents getting angry at him. And he's just like, that's it. I'm just gonna not listen to you anymore. I'm just gonna do my thing. So that's the vibe of the song. The reason we picked it was uh, Dee Snyder and Twisted Sister were an iconic uh, heavy metal band from the 1980s and they actually got on the hit list of the PMRC, which is the Parents Music Resource Centre. Mm. So a group of uh, parents decided that rock and roll had gone too far and they had a hit list, which they called... Filthy the 15. Filthy 15, thank you, yeah, <laughs> of, of musical acts that had gone too far in their minds mm. and so Twisted Sister was on the top of that list and the Parents Music Resource Centre actually decided to um, ask for a Senate hearing into the filthy lyrics of rock and roll in the 1980s and Twisted Sister was on the list and Dee Snider was invited to come to uh, be interviewed at Senate and he was also uh, facing off with Tipper Gore who was um, Al, Gore's, Al wife. Gore's wife in 1984 this happened and so the the PMRC or the Parents Music Resource Centre, they um, they were going to challenge Dee Snyder and they thought that Dee Snyder was going to be a piece of cake. He came in dressed like a rock and roll <laughs> young hippie guy. He'd still got sort of blurry makeup on from his concert from the night before. He had long hair, 
you know, skin tight jeans, you know, t-shirt, denim, sits down and he gets his notes out for the hearing from his back pocket in a folded up piece of paper and starts unfolding it. It was all theatre. Like he wanted them to underestimate him from the beginning. So they're looking at him going, we got this guy, like this, this is it. But what he ended up having in the Senate hearing committee was a very articulate response to the concerns of the parent lobby because basically what he was arguing for was free speech and they were actually arguing for censorship. And um, if you go back to the 1950s, censorship had been a big issue within the entertainment industry back then. Uh, they were looking for communists. I remember Lucille Ball was called out as a communist at one stage. Um, they were looking for reds under the bed, as they were saying mm -hmm. in the 1950s. There was also a whole heap of rules in the 1950s where you couldn't show a married couple in bed with each other on a television program like I Dream of Jeannie or... Um, what was Lucille Ball's show? I can't even remember what. Um, I, I, I Love Lucy, I think it was called. I Love Lucy. You know, they were a married couple, but they weren't allowed to be shown in the same bed as each other. They weren't allowed to show a toilet on a TV show. They had all these <laughs> censorship rules. Yeah, yeah, it was really full on. Right. So there was things they could talk about, things they couldn't talk about. Now, that changed a bit over the 60s and 70s, but by the 80s, it's almost like this... Uh, um, this parents group was uh, and part of a moral majority, which we'll talk about a little later, they were uh, wanting to really censor some of the lyrics and they're saying there's a lot of filthy lyrics in these songs. Mm -hmm. And Dee Snider was really interesting because he said actually one of the songs that they picked, which they said was particularly horrific, I can't remember the name of the song now, but it was about his friend had just had a throat operation, under the knife I think it was called, yeah. and um, he had a throat operation and the parents were trying to say that was about um, other things that were not as um, clinical as an operation and so he was able to say well actually if you're if you've got a an imagination that goes into other dark places then you're going to import onto the songs all sorts of different things but really the songs are not all about uh, these outrageous things you think they're about and you know there was a lot of songs that were um, we could we could talk about that now songs that were dealing with sexuality and dealing with with um, you know what it was like to be a teenager at the time sexual revolution is continuing to go forward um young people are trying to work out how to have their own voice in gen x after the baby boomers had started that really but basically as d snyder was saying is what's the place of free speech and in that court case free speech won and he was able to articulate his position and avoided censorship and the yeah i don't know what the other 15 filthy 15 were i think acdc was on it yeah um, acdc are on there uh, wasp sheena easton prince was on there prince yeah uh, motley crew which is unsurprising judas priest mm. so there's plenty of those bands from the 1980s uh which I think it seems like they picked and choose their songs and then said, let's use these to, for, mm. to, to try and ban and, and, and uh, put forward their political stance. Yeah. Madonna is another yeah. one that was yeah. on there. Um, I was going to ask Tim, though, are you a fan of any of those bands in the 1980s and what do you, what do you make of the, the D. Snyder case in the Senate? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm a bit too young to really have gotten into any of these bands, still in their heyday. Um, what are you trying to say, Tim? Uh, I'm not making any judgments about anyone else on the table. Um, but, uh, I mean, they're all bands that I are aware of and heard of and sort of, I guess, um, I situate myself in the sort of the generation after that in the, in the 90s and mm. what we've seen there is, what was really interesting is that this court case went ahead and a whole lot of things... Um, came out of this, but often what the um, Parent Resource Centre weren't expecting. Um, so, for example, you, know, you get the explicit stickers that get on put on the front mm. of labels mm. after this. It's talking about explicit language, um, which the bands just love. They just think this is fantastic. Um, and so they 
try and therefore make um, as, as explicit lyrics as they can to keep pushing the boundaries because right. they know that the teenagers um, are intentionally rebelling against their parents. And so that label uh, for the parents, like, oh, I know I want to keep my child away from that. But for the kids, it was like, oh, that's awesome. Like, I want to get. Yeah, yeah, I want to yeah. collect as many of those as, as possible. Um, and so you get those, we get a lot of the pushing of the boundaries. Um, even further, so they they're intentionally pushing it even harder and harder. So actually, this uh, attempt to um, limit the speech of these bands and what they can and cannot sing about, and what they can produce musically or put out um, on MTV or those kinds of things, actually just encourages those bands to push it even further. Mm. Um, and so we actually get the resistance to that. Um, and so it becomes therefore even more popular to make as explicit as possible, make it um, as you know, crass as possible and to keep pushing those boundaries um, to a point where I think when I was growing up, there was still an awareness that there was bands that were um, had cleaner lyrics than others, but it was just also just expected that bands were swearing in their music and that they were pushing the boundaries that um, MTV, or for us in Australia, was Rage on the ABC yep. on Sunday mornings mm. um, and Saturday mornings. Like that was, you know, you expect that there was you know, sexual explicit imagery and lyrics and things going on there and that was really normal because um, we were, you know, as I'm, I'm watching as a teenager, well, 10 years after this and you've just, it hasn't had the effect that that... Um, the parent group was really hoping for. Yeah, and I think the relevance for us with this story for our journey in this season about whatever happened to evangelism is we've talked about the fact that um, that the there is an evangelical line through history where you can see that there are Protestants throughout history that have really focused on sharing the good news about Jesus and proselytizing or evangelizing. Uh, but in the early 1900s, we talked about the fact last week that uh, there was a group of people who were evangelicals who decided to start a group called the Fundamentalists because they were so concerned with the direction of society. They were picking up that Christendom was starting to come to an end, that um, this big debate between faith and reason was starting to tip towards reason uh, in a very popular way. And by 1928, the Fundamentalists had decided to become politically active uh, in their attempts to try and... Um, keep faith at the centre of particularly American society. And so Marsden, the writer Marsden, has said um, that a fundamentalist is a politically active evangelical. And so in 1928, uh, the fundamentalists, those evangelicals who were politically active, took um, a school teacher to court in 1928 uh, called Scopes and put him on trial for teaching evolution in school. And there's a whole heap of story that we talked about a couple of weeks ago on the podcast about that if you want to go back and look at it in more detail. But it was a very public and humiliating defeat for the fundamentalists because mm -hmm. the public opinion really swayed towards uh, the, the defendant in that and against the fundamentalists. And last week we were talking about the rise of the evangelicals again uh, just before the Second World War and, and into the 50s with Billy Graham particularly. Uh, but fundamentalism hasn't completely gone away. So what we're seeing now in the the another public trial, uh, this time brought to to bear by parents who are part of this group that's growing in the 1980s, which we'll talk about in a bit, called the Moral Majority. This is, I think, a, a second awakening of fundamentalism, where uh, because of the 1960s, culture has shifted again very strongly. Many young people have left the church um, in 1960. 
six, there was a Time magazine article that said God is dead in America because of the questioning of the liberals about the Bible and also because popular culture had moved away from Christianity so far. So one of the responses was evangelicals continuing to work out uh, new ways to evangelize. But the fundamentalists have risen up again by the 1980s saying, well, we need to put a, a limit on this musical expression of our teenagers and hopefully we can have a public show trial. But they didn't learn from the 1928 mm-hmm. Scopes Monkey trial where there was a humiliating defeat. And in the same way, 1984, we have uh, this uh, show trial of Twisted Sister and Dee Snider. And again, Dee Snider comes across as the... The, the voice that's, that wins the day. So this idea that we should be anti-censorship and we should give free speech. It's really interesting too that that issue of censorship hasn't gone away. Yeah. And we're going to talk about how that's flipped in our generation that um, once upon a time it was the Christian conservatives calling for censorship. Now it's other voices that are calling for censorship in our society. Mm. But yeah, I think the, the it's a great way to start today's podcast talking about uh, this this era, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a good video of uh, Dee Snider sitting sitting in front of the Senate committee, which we'll, we'll link in the show notes because yeah, it's great. quite funny. Yeah, I do also remember um, when I went that ex- talking about the explicit content. I remember that my, I went to buy a, a, the first CD. One of the first CDs I wanted to buy was a Regurgitator CD, yeah, and it had that explicit warning on it. And then my mum went through the lyrics and said, "No, you can't buy this." My dad's <laughs> like, "Oh, maybe you can have it." And it was, <laughs> but that's interesting that that's where it led to was that me buying a CD saying it had explicit language on it after that yeah. Senate committee. And I noticed that, I mean, even today, um, when you look through, I mean, Apple Music, um, I think Spotify might do the same thing, that lyrics or albums will have the little E yep. afterwards. Such as, yep. So there's still um, a remnant of that. And I think that that, I mean, as a parent now, I think that's helpful because there's still a way in which I can choose which, which songs and albums I want to, um, you know, let my kids listen to at different particular ages and then I'll get into a stage where, you know, I'm a little bit more opening up a little bit and so it's like, okay, oh, you're now old enough to and mature enough to start to process, okay, what does it mean when they're swearing? What are they mm. expressing? How are they feeling? Why what, might we not model that language even if we're listening to it? How do we engage but not copy and mirror? So uh, there's still, uh, as a Christian parent, there's still a, a usefulness, I think, there, which is still... But, um, yeah, it's interesting to see how that has changed. And for some, it's the that's the selling point, mm. is that, oh, yeah, oh, let's be as explicit as we can, mm. which is a really um, fascinating endpoint out of that trial. Mm. Yeah, um, and again, great example. Another great, great choice, Stu. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, if we, but we should look back about where that came from. I mean, we talked about the moral majority and the Christian right um, being a force in helping, helping that Senate committee to happen. But a lot of that lies within um, what happened prior in the 60s, Stu. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, uh, I've right here, it's a tumultuous period in, the, in US history, and I think you would agree with that. Do you want to give us the, the, the rundown of the 60s? I'll give the brief rundown. Again, uh, listeners and viewers can look up some of uh, more detail in our previous seasons where mm-hmm. we've looked at the 60s in quite a lot of detail. But the, the quick flyover is that um, after the Second World War, uh, the builder generation or the war generation, um, many uh, soldiers come home from um, the war and mm. they settle down into suburban life often. A lot of families moved out of the cities into the suburbs. The nuclear family was born. Um, there's a lot more technology now. So, you know, um, uh, you've got this new kind of world 
of industry uh, changing the way people live continually. The car is very influential in that because now um, people don't need to live right next door to where they work. They can drive to the suburbs, so the suburbs start to grow. Within the nuclear families, there's a baby boom, and the generation of that baby boom are called the baby boomers, or as we like to call them today, the boomers. And uh, the boomers were <laughs> people who were born just after the Second World War. There's a huge baby boom and lots and lots of kids are born. And then by the time that the late 50s come along, uh, the oh, by the way, the 50s was quite a conservative era. There was this opinion amongst the war generation, we've won the war, now this enjoy the peace. And prosperity was a, a massive goal of that generation. I don't want to be too... Uh, stereotypical of whole big movements of human history or generations but it's really interesting to see that in the 1960s a lot of young people rebel against some of those themes of prosperity and economic prosperity being the be all and end all uh, there's there's the birth of rock and roll there is the sexual revolution because the pill is invented and people can uh, now uh, women now have a contraceptive contraceptive that they can use uh, there is a lot of political change particularly coming out of america because america um, usa has not been devastated by world war ii and a lot of its infrastructure has remained in place because they didn't have any bombing um, suffered any bombing so there's this massive industrial complex of the university system that's hugely focused on producing young people to be factors of production in this innovative growing, in, yeah innovative in this big uh conglomerate of American capitalism that's growing out of the 1950s. So it's very conservative era. Um, a lot of the pop culture in the 50s is quite banal and very safe and squeaky clean. But then you hit the late 1950s and you have, um, uh, you have rock and roll born. And during the 1960s, that experiment of rock and roll continues to be a really powerful mouthpiece for the generation. Uh, clothing styles change, attitudes towards... Lots of things change. The civil rights movement gets a big kick on in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. uh, and you also get a, a big kick on an anti-war movement with the Vietnam War. Uh, so there's a lot of protest by 1968, probably through to 1971. There's a great deal of social upheaval in America. There's the monitoriums where people are marching against the war. There's a confluence of African-American uh, young people in Black Panthers marching with students from Berkeley University in California, marching with um, people who are... Uh, really influenced by rock and roll music of um, the Grateful Dead and uh, later the Beatles and then you know other bands that will come forward. Uh, drug taking becomes a big thing as well. So that article that I mentioned, Time Magazine 1966, is reflective of all these huge changes because lots of young people are leaving the church. So if you look at Sydney, where we're from, the church I came from, at Guymer Anglican Church, by the early 60s, they still had 400 children coming to the Sunday school every week, 400 children. They didn't do any advertising, they didn't do any school scripture or anything like that. They just opened the doors and 400 kids would come to Sunday school. By 1970s, when I was a, uh, in primary school, there was probably 100. So you've dropped by 300 in just a decade, and that's an indication of what's going on there. Um, the, the response from that generation was you've got Billy Graham preaching and his massive rallies that are going forward that we talked about last week. You have um, a new Bible study movement starting up where people in churches are getting really serious about the Word of God. Uh, the charismatic movement has begun to uh, take off again. Uh, Calvary Ch Chapel, for example, was uh, an American example of that that led to the... To, to a lot of expansion there. And in the late 1960s, you get Christian teenagers 
who are actually really interested in rock and roll, but they're also really passionate about the message that they have. And you have a brand new style of preaching that emerges, which is uh, rock and roll preachers. And it was called the Jesus Movement. And it was started by Christian musicians and others who were starting coffee houses where people could come and listen to Christian music in a coffee house. And basically they get a guitar and write a song about Jesus, but not just about Jesus, also have commentary about the world and the turmoil that they were going through. And one of the prominent uh, artists in that regard was a guy called Larry Norman. And there was others, uh, second chapter of Acts, um, all sorts of different bands that were emerging at that time. And they were making such a buzz that by 1971, there was a Time magazine article that had um, the cover story was the Jesus Revolution. Yeah. So within, what was that, five years from Time magazine God is dead in America to 1971, the Jesus Revolution, this Jesus movement had become so popular amongst young people that there were now 800 Jesus communes across the United States. And you could travel from New York to the East Coast without having to pay anything for a night to stay. Uh, that, that movement spread all across the whole world and came to Australia. In Australia, there were coffee houses called the House of the Gentle Bunyip, House of the Purple Door the attic and these were really popular places where teenagers were coming and hearing the gospel preached in their native tongue in rock and roll which is really interesting so the early days people like Keith Green were really prominent but young people would become a Christian and then they'd use their guitar to help other people understand faith uh, the outcome of that was particularly that because the mainline churches were so traditional there was this big discussion was taking place in mainline churches at the time of the place of music and there was this decision made in the early 70s amongst many mainline Protestants that they would continue their traditional services with the hymns and the prayer book, for example, in the Anglican church and robes and all those traditions in the morning service. And then in the evening service, they'd have a youth service. And the youth service, they'd have guitars and drums and rock and roll and a youth group on a Friday night, which was like those Jesus communes and coffee houses. So that model of uh, separating the generations within our churches came from a decision by many churches to retain the traditions for the older people, the pre-war generation, and continue to have a contemporary service for uh, the young people. Now, when the young people, by the end of the 1970s, are starting to have families themselves, they can't take their kids to the nighttime services easily because the kids need to go to bed. So they decide to migrate back to the morning. So by the late 1970s, lots of local churches have started contemporary family services because they, did, they don't want to go back to join their parents' generation at that time in the traditional service. Mm -hmm. So they start their own baby boomer service called the contemporary uh, family service. And so what we get in a church like I grew up in at Guy Wranglican is you have now three services on a Sunday, one for traditional people, one for families and one for youth. And we call that the homogeneous unit principle. And that becomes a principle of evangelism which says let's let the traditional people mission to traditional people let's let the families evangelize families and let's let the youth evangelize youth so it was actually set up as a missional strategy as an evangelistic strategy so for our purposes today we could say evangelicals have decided to plurify their evangelistic voice into right. those different generations because of the turmoil of the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And what we're interested in is as the evangelicals are in that project of the homogeneous unit principle, which is the ev evangelical response to the 60s, I think, what you get is there's going to be a building momentum, though, for another wave of fundamentalists coming through in the 1980s. So despite the Scopes Monkey Trial, 
humiliating the fundamentalists in 1928, you now have the moral majority, you have Ronald Reagan emerging in the 1980s, and there are some commentators that argue that because the Jesus movement converted so many people in the 70s, those who'd left the church, their message was come home too, by the way. It was like come back to Christ. So the early evangelicals were having an evangelistic message that was you were a Christian when you were growing up amongst the 400 kids going to Sunday school. You've now gone and left and gone into rock and roll and the pub and all that sort of stuff, but come back. We're going to take our music back to the parks to sing and call you back to Jesus. So many young people did come back to Jesus that by 1980s, early 1980s, when Ronald Reagan comes on the scene, he has a support base from the Jesus movement because if it wasn't for the Jesus movement, I think there would have been even more devastation within churches from the 1960s. Interestingly, while I talked about the... um, the mainline churches like the Baptists and the event, uh, the Anglicans and, and those kind of denominations that have been around a long time, they adopted the homogeneous unit principle. But the other example is charismatic churches would actually come to have a different model, which is let's take the young people's music and just change completely to this new model of this new era. And that's one of the reasons I think that culturally, there's other reasons we could talk about uh, later, but culturally the the charismatics were quicker to adapt to the 1960s change in music and attitudes and also um talking about the holy spirit and emphasizing the holy spirit more Mm. and helping people to have an understanding of how to have a relationship with god more some people argue culturally sociologically help those churches grow quite significantly so you get this big debate in the 70s and 80s between mainline churches protestants and the charismatics which is a debate that sort of i think was started by the 60s and I think that's a really interesting phenomena. It was evangelicals trying to work out what is our way of evangelizing to this new world that we find ourselves in, this new rock and roll generation. Now, within that, um, yeah, by the time you get Ronald Reagan come along, he is, um, he's going to have a lot of people who've grown up now and had kids who are very concerned about family values, which would be interesting for Tim to comment on in just a sec. So they're really conservative in their thinking and that's what leads to this impulse of a new fundamentalist break away from evangelicals. So while you've got evangelicals who are saying let's either use the homogeneous unit principle or let's have this charismatic church completely become younger and change the way we do music, the third option is the moral majority which say let's get politically active again. We need to, you know, fight this stuff and one of the key flashpoints was music right back in the 1960s the uh, john lennon said in an interview in an offhand comment that he said oh the beatles are more popular than jesus now and that caused a political outrage in the u.s as a lot of parents burnt beatles records and now you've got this moral majority forming into a formal political movement in the 1980s actually influencing american political uh, outcomes of having uh, ronald reagan elected so yeah, yeah. We hit all the dot points. <laughs> we can go back over some. That's of those what I think. I think we again. definitely should do that. I was just going to ask him. Um, oh, sorry, ask both of you to begin with. We talk about the uh, modernists and fundamentalists and all that kind of thing. Uh, the different tributaries, as you call them. So, you, uh, just so I can clarify, you say that the Jesus movement um, was that part of the evangelical line, and then split off into its an, a new one, or is it how how would how did that work? Yeah. So my view is, I think. If you take Marsden's categories of evangelicals and fundamentalists, an evangelical is is a person who is attempting to preach the gospel into their context. 
a fundamentalist is a politically active evangelical. Mm-hmm. I would put the Jesus movement as evangelical, not fundamentalist. Mm. So the Jesus movement are young people using Christian rock and using uh, coffee houses to evangelise their generation. That's not a political tactic to to try and change society. But what you get with the moral majority in the 1980s is they decide to go to Senate to try and stop rock and roll being sung. So you can see that really clearly. The evangelical line is, let's use rock and roll to preach the gospel. The fundamentalists say, let's try and stop rock and roll. Let's remove it. Well, their excesses (laughs) at least, yeah. Mm, Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just thinking... um like with the Jesus people, and I'd also thinking as I listened to last week's episode, you talking about John Stott, um, and one of the earliest books I read of John Stott's was Issues Facing Christians mm-hmm. Today, mm-hmm. and I was I'm reflecting on those different things and trying to think about this idea that fundamentalists are the politically active evangelicals, um, but the evangelicals are still um, commenting on. Their society, so there's still a, a social yep. commentary that's going yep. on, and we see that in Larry Norman. Yep, uh, and it's a lot true. of his protest songs. Great American novel. Great American novel, which is just a really fantastic one. People mm. should check out. Um, and John Stott writing this, you know, quite dense, uh, well, not dense, comprehensive tone mm. on, on the issues facing mm. Christians today, and it, which was first in 1984, I think I looked up. Mm. Um, so he's, he's talking about nuclear war. He's talking about mm. industrial action. He's talking about all these different things that are facing Christian world. Um, and yet there is that distinction between being aware of and trying to bring the gospel to bear on mm. these social issues without feeling like you have to go the political That's right. line, which mm. is, I just found really interesting. I don't interesting. know if you've got any thoughts on that. Yeah, and I would, I would add that both Billy Graham and John Stott actually both wrote positively towards the Jesus movement because mm. I think they saw them as inheritors of this evangelical line because mm. these young people were trying to sing the gospel uh, through their music. And so... John Stott in one of his commentaries, I think it's his commentary on Mark or Matthew, but uh, interested listeners or viewers could go and check it out. But his introduction talks about the Jesus movement and talks about how exciting it is that they're talking about the Holy Spirit and they're, but he's encouraging them to put all of those uh, great impulses into the context of a biblical framework and continue mm-hmm. to... So that's, that's this idea of propositional truth that we talked about last week, that evangelicals in the first... Um, decades of the second half of the 20th century were very strong on this is true and we need to we need to pr- pronounce this i think the jesus movement moves us into a relational uh moment in the evangelical timeline where people are saying you can be actually in a relationship with god and the holy spirit uh is actually indwelling in the life of a believer and so there's this huge focus on um i suppose encouraging people to have a relationship with god and so this is a really interesting trajectory as a society is now becoming more interested in ideas than they're becoming interested in economics so i said earlier in the 1950s economics was still the predominant impulse for the west and when you look at our political landscape uh, particularly uh, in, in Australia, you see the Liberal Party and the Labor Party. The Labor Party represented the workers. The Liberal Party represented the owners of production and the capitalists, the business people. Mm-hmm. And they would vie for power over the 
rights of workers or the rights of owners of production. But what's interesting in the 60s is there's a thinker called Alan Terrain who argues that all these new social movements that emerge in the 60s are now making ideas more powerful than just economics. So the idea of the sexual revolution, the idea of anti-war, the idea of environmentalism, the idea of uh, gay rights, the Mm -hmm. idea of feminism, these ideas that are very much shaping our world to this day actually start to emerge through what's called new social movements as young, young people are starting to argue for these new ideas, you know, kind of separating themselves off from their parents' desire for economic prosperity, saying, no, actually, we need to create a different kind of world, like a different kind of society. Mm. Anti-Vietnam War, stuff like that, anti-nuclear, you mentioned, you know, all these things. So, so what does evangelism look like in that context? Well, it's the society's become so plurified between the generations that the initial impulse of the evangelicals is, well, let's have a ministry to the older people with the older mindset and the younger people with the younger mindset. But the fundamentalists are going to say, well, actually, no, we need to go to war against the things that are changing us, that go, mm. go to war with those ideas. Mm. And they needed a focal point to go to war with it politically, and it was rock and roll by the 1980s. Mm. So, yeah. And this this was, I was, no, sorry, I was just fascinated as you were talking that I hadn't occurred to me the way in which the homogeneous unit principle had particularly affected evangelical churches and mm. not mainstream or fundamentalist churches. But as you said that, I started thinking through churches that I'm aware of and traditions mm. that I'm aware of. I'm like, oh, actually, yeah, it's, as I think about from a children's ministry mm. perspective, as I now thinking about a lot of intergenerational ministry research and things that I'm doing, it's like, yeah, actually, that I can see that making sense, that it was, la- it, I don't know, maybe it, it seems now, as you said that, I'm reflecting, trying to think, is it predominantly the evangelical churches that homogenised into those different age brackets more so than any of the others and, um, and what the influence was? Yeah, I think that's an interesting phrase you used about the evangelical churches or the fundamentalist churches. It'd be really interesting to unpack that a bit together today. But I think what you get is you get an evangelical church and a group of people within that church who become fundamentalists. Okay. So, but, or a pastor who becomes fundamentalist. So in our context now, we'd have local churches, but then we'd have a thing called the ACL. And we'll come back to the Australian church. What's it called? Australian Christian Christian Lobby. The Australian Christian Lobby, because I know there's an Anglican church league as well as ACL which is a different yeah. that's different again but not to confuse <laughs> our viewers and listeners no no that's, I just got it yeah I got a bit confused there that's right. but the ACL the Australian Christian lobby is I think what Marsden would classify as a politically active evangelical group now they don't have ACL churches but they have membership of mm. ACL and evangelicals who have a drive to become politically active from a conservative point of view will tend to go to ACL lectures and read their material and be influenced by them. So they can go to an evangelical church, but then they're part of this fundamentalist political activity at the same time. I think that's an interesting thing to point out. Yeah, it's really interesting to keep um, thinking about that. I, I just uh, wanted to return to the 60s, if that's yeah. right, for a second. And my question, and one of the reasons I asked the question about um, where did kind of the Jesus movement fit in, is because there was an also an interesting thing. Uh, you mentioned the, the baby boomer generation where the young young people were the, the, the larger part of the population they ever had been in American mm. history, which is means they probably have a little bit more influence than they mm. maybe did before to be able to make those um, social changes. Mm. And one of them was uh, like a, a time in America representative of that was um, the election of John F. Kennedy. Yes. 
which I thought was interesting. And I was going to read, I thought I'd read two different um, quotes that I found that I thought, like, let's, let's try and have a think about what that means uh, in terms of where that evangelical line fits. So the election of JFK apparently rolled those that identified themselves as fundamentalists. So uh, Bob Jones, who we've talked about before, he said that if Kennedy is a good Catholic, his religion requires him to owe first allegiance to the Pope and not to the United States. But then also Billy Graham, someone else that we've spoken about, said that some Protestants are hesitant to vote for a Catholic because the Catholic Church is not only a religious but a secular institution which receives ambassadors from secular states. So it's, I thought it's interesting that also amongst, we're talking about fundamentalists, evangelicals and modernists and or liberalists as we, we could call them, there's also the idea of the Catholic Church being part of that. Mm. Perhaps a leftover of Christendom. What do you think about those two different quotes? That I yeah, so I, I think what's interesting is you're right um, – we're coming to the end of Christendom into the 20th century. So Christendom is that time where church and state have kind of been aligned and, mm. and you know, right through Christian history, there's, you know, been even battles over countries because of um, uh, the, the linkage there. So in the Reformation the, in England, the, the Catholics and the Protestants fought each other over a, a fair amount of time for domination over the country kind of thing and I think you've got a hangover of that sort of impulse going right into the 20th century where you've got uh, in Australia again the Catholic Church was very prominent within the Labour Party and the, the Liberal Party um, the, the Church of England was very prominent in the Liberal Party in Australia well in America the Protestant evangelicals were very dominant and uh, the Catholic um, president was seen as a threat by some mm. Protestant mm. evangelicals. So I think that is a political hangover from the past. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because like, if you're evangelising in that era, you need to understand this interplay between Catholic and Protestant. I think it was interesting. I was at a party a couple of weeks ago and I was standing next to a friend of mine who's a Catholic and, and he made a bit of a quip. He said, um, oh, look at me standing next to a Protestant. And <laughs> I, I thought, that's a strange thing to say. I don't even think about that. <laughs> right now and he said and I said oh that's a strange thing to say I don't even think about that now and he goes well at least we don't burn each other anymore do we? <laughs> and I thought oh that's a, that's a bit of a dark dark humour thing to say mm. and um, anyway it reminded me though it was like a really big thing I mean my grandparents told me that when they used to walk to church on Sunday the Protestant kids would walk to church to the Presbyterian church and the Catholic kids would be walking to their Catholic service which was across the road and apparently the Catholic kids and the Protestant kids used to throw stones at each other on the way and they had you know bad nicknames for each other so obviously that's changed um, in Australia we don't throw stones at each other anymore as well mm. uh, but yeah I think that that there is a really interesting example of how how the the religious realities of America and Australia were were being coming into play in Australia we get a lot of convicts coming from Northern Ireland and islands, and so um, Irish Catholics actually tended to be very prominent in the Labour Party. And again, a lot of the English immigrants that came out not as convicts were often Church of England, and they used to vote for the Liberal Party. So there was that those those kind of dynamics aren't as much at play anymore because of the 1960s. Mm. Yeah, and also probably a sign that things are changing. That um, yeah, that's right. At the uh, the perhaps the modernist ideals of like looking at science and reason and all those kind mm. of things are making uh, these issues come up mm. because it's like well th there's almost the grappling of we need we want to remain as a 
reformed evangelical society mm. but mm. then the things like in the 1960s are saying no we don't even need to think about that anymore mm. but then as a reaction perhaps the Jesus movement was a reaction to that it's like mm. well we've got all these things changing but we still want to hold to the truth of the Bible yeah. this is where we need to um, mm. continue to um, make that a thing to be talking about. And Billy Graham was a big part of that, obviously, that he's still engaged politically, but not um, as a priority like mm. the fundamentalist did. Um, Tim, is there any more you want to hit on the 1960s before we move on to the to the next era? Oh, I'm happy to move on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no worries at all. Um, so 1970s, uh, one big thing that I thought, one big thing that... Uh, played a lot into the fundamentalist, uh, um, well, not uprising, I should call it, the fundamentalist becoming more prominent and politically active was the Supreme Court decision on Roe versus Wade, mm. um, where there was a, a, a real difficult debate on abortion. Yep. Um, but then also that there is also, the fundamentalists began to see that they were in the throes of a cultural crisis and that they needed to f- push really hard yep. and push really They f- They almost felt like, their country was being taken over and they yeah. needed to fight back at that. Yeah. Um, and then there's also the 1976 presidential election. Uh, Jimmy Carter spoke openly about being born again. Um, and then also Gerald Ford, the Republican candidate, uh, was an Episcopalian and wanted to describe himself as born again, but didn't go as hard as Jimmy Carter mm. saying that he was a deacon of his church and Sunday school teacher. So there seems like now they've beyond the 60s, it's a, the social and cultural revolution. It's now... Well, we're still a Christian country, but we still need to, like, the the issues are changing. Why, perhaps, and uh, you might jump in on this, however you think. Yeah. But what what is your reaction to that, and why do you think that, even though everything changed, it's still in 1976, Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford are still needing feeling they need to declare that they are Christian. It's a different. It's a strange interplay to say that everything's changing in society, but oh, we also need to claim we're Christian. Yeah. A couple of things there. So, yeah, I think there are some Christians of that era that would have talked in terms of we're a Christian country in America and Australia, but it's really interesting to unpack that. Have, has Australia ever been a Christian country or has America ever been a Christian country? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think that's for another day. But, yeah, I think that when you look at something like the President of the United States having to declare themselves as a Christian in order to get elected, it does speak to the fact that a lot of people go to church. So I don't know the exact numbers, but my uh, my guess is like 80% of the population, something like that, are going to church every Sunday. And so it's almost essential that someone says something to the fact mm. that they're a Christian. Um, a Gallup poll found that a third of Americans described them as bored again. So yeah, there you go. So, um, And then I think even though rock and roll did actually come in and change a lot of the dynamic there, it's going to take decades for that to really flow through. So like I said, in the early 60s, there's still 400 kids going to Sunday school at Guy Anglican Church, 100 by the 70s and that continues to decline over the 80s and 90s and up up, up to this day uh churches are finding it harder and harder to get young people to come and listen to the gospel and have a conversation about faith so i think that there's this trajectory of the end of christendom has been associated with declining attendances in churches Mm -hmm. uh and and politicians not feel over time politicians not feeling as uh, so much need to actually align themselves with Christian values over time. So, so it's, it's interesting. I was just thinking, uh, just in the last couple of days, um, there's been the latest uh, Supreme Court nominee uh, process happening in America. Yeah. And even uh, the latest nominee, who is from the Democratic, so the more progressive side, even she has made comment about how important faith is in her life. Yeah. And it's really yeah, interesting so that there. she yeah. still feels that 
uh, in order to way. wane someone, like whoever, there's, there's a particular constituency mm. that is still feeling like I need to hear that this person has a particular religious, uh, even Christian faith mm. Mm. in order to put myself forward in government. I just think it's a really yeah, fascinating Yeah, that is interesting, move. isn't it? Yeah, it is. Because Biden's also made similar... Well, yeah, he's made a lot of his comments. Catholic faith. Yeah, um, has, how important yeah. that is for him. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think I think things change really slow. I mean, we have seen a lot of dramatic change over the last few years. People ripping down statues and all the stuff we talked about last season about all the different new <laughs> social movements that continue to change the way we mm-hmm. think. And, and you know, TV is changing dramatically. The censorship thing we can come back to, but over really when you look at it human history does move quite yeah you have moments of change but it takes a long time for those changes to to move right through a society so yeah and and also i think what we're talking about there in the 70s is setting the stage for that moral majority to come to come out because there's there's still uh there's a i spoke about the gallup poll saying a third of americans described themselves as born again there's also a newsweek poll around that time that found that 50 million adult americans believe the bible was the word of god Mm. and to be taken uh, literally word for word, mm. which is mm. an interesting thing to say. But I think that lends itself to the fundamentalists getting even more political and wanting to d- do it. I mean, I, I, in one, some of the research I was saying that said that they often, the fundamentalists often fought against the civil rights movement, mm. but then um, the Civil Rights Act coming in in, uh, in the 70s actually gave them more of a platform to be able to speak about the political issues that were important to them. And I think a key part of that was uh, towards the end of the 70s is a, a guy called Jerry Falwell who was the um, he co- he created uh, the organization called the moral majority and he was warning against the danger of moral degeneracy so it's it's still really um, trying to grab hold of that fact of or the, the the idea that they felt that their country was being taken away from them and that we need to return it to how it was in order to ensure that we uh, continue to be uh, heard because that, that was the other thing that the moral majority said was that they're actually a silent majority and when when you hear that you kind of think of like that almost lends itself to how um uh people uh, who voted for trump in the in the recent recent elections were saying the same thing is that we are not being heard we need to be heard and obviously one of the the fundamentalist way was let's become really politically active so that we can be heard mm-hmm. and we can change things um I would like to throw out this term that Jerry Falwell talked about called um, Christians were waging wars with secular humanists. Do you have an idea of what that would mean? So secular humanists is another phrase for those who would purport that human reason is more authoritative than faith. Right. So it goes all the way back to the earlier podcast we are talking about with the beginning of the big debates between science and, and mm. Christian faith and the Bible and science, things like that. Mm. Um, I think what's really interesting is this the battle in 1928 scopes monkey trial was quite a short thing but this moral majority thing drags on for decades mm. and the two important points that i want to make in the podcast today that are relevant for us in our evangelism is one is um there's a lot of cultural memory still present amongst um many of us of the moral majority's attempts to to go to war with culture and for the culture the the musical artists like Twisted Sister to actually say, yeah, give me, their comment was, give us the flag, we'll fight these people and <laughs> fight against their censorship. And that, that actually dragged on right through the decade of the 1980s. There was big 
controversies about syncopation, that drum beats were <laughs> of the devil. I mean, at our church, there were people saying they had a parish council meeting to talk about whether we should have a guitar in church. And then there was another parish council to say, should we have drums? And someone spoke against drums, saying it was the, it was the tool of the devil to bring devil's music into the church. So this was a big thing. Mm. Backmasking was a big thing. Mm. They, were, they were saying that there's all these hidden lyrics. Um, but coming back from the other side, right up until 1993, an example is in uh, a concert in July 18, 1993, Rage Against the Machine protested against the PMRC at L- Lollapalooza concert. L- Lollapalooza. Thank you for helping me with that pronunciation. <laughs> That's all right. Um, and the way they demonstrated was they stood naked on stage with duct mm. tape covering their mouths and letters PMRC on their chests. Uh, yes, that, like, yeah, because so yeah. Rage Against the Machine is one of my favourite bands. And yes, okay. I, I can Yeah, I, there you go. They were very politically active. Yeah, yeah. So what you've got is... Um, there's a memory of these fundamentalists. So I think what's important for us uh, to understand is we need to understand two things. Um, when we're talking to people about uh, sharing our faith with them, I think a lot of people assume we're fundamentalists. Mm. And so it's actually helpful for us to make a distinction for people between evangelicals and politically, ev- politically active evangelicals so that we can actually say what you're talking to, who you're talking to is someone who is just sharing the story of Jesus with you and asking for you to have a response. You're not talking to a member of the PMRC, unless, of course, someone is a fundamentalist. <laughs> but I actually differentiate myself between from a fundamentalist. I actually went to a conference once with an American evangelical, and he said, how would you describe yourself, Stuart? And I said, oh, I'm an evangelical. He goes, wow, I'm even surprised you would call yourself that now. Really? You can still call yourself an evangelical? Because they equated that with a Trump supporter, with the the moral majority with the Christian Ghost right. trial with yeah. the Christian right which yeah. we haven't talked about yet yeah. and and I think the whole idea of a Christian right is a politically active evangelical has mm. decided to vote right wing politics but I think it's important for us in our evangelism to understand that many of us have stopped evangelizing because we're worried about being labelled as a fundamentalist but if we can understand first and then help other people to see through this story we're telling that Mm. evangelicals are different to fundamentalists in that they're not politically active they're just interested in someone's personal salvation and that doesn't mean they don't have political views and they don't say or do things that are political but their main strategy is not to get someone to vote for donald trump or not vote for someone else yeah i just want to off the back of that there's a question is that we use the Twisted Sister example and also um, their political uh, engagement in a lot of things with the fundamentalists. But there also seems to be a, a thing about that Christians should just disengage with culture. And mm-hmm. we've, we, I mean, we've talked about it in a previous episode about how to understand the 2010s and 2020s culture. I'm just wondering if we could go back to that. Tim, if you want to go first. That, and we all looked at Billy Graham. Uh, last week we said that Billy Graham didn't disengage from culture. I mean, we looked at one of his sermons where he mentioned three different things out of, out of, out of uh, culture and history that in, bas- in basically in a paragraph. So I'm just wondering, how do we hold the tension between through the truth of the Bible and also um, engaging in culture so that we don't completely disengage from it? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, if I go back to the Bible, and, and particularly I'm thinking about, uh, Paul's letters because he's writing to the early church and so he's they're the most immediately applicable in some ways in, in that he's, he's writing as a pastor to gatherings of Christians who were living in a very uh, non-Christian world in their, in their ancient Roman Empire yeah. um, and what strikes me about the ways that he talks to them is the, we, we talked about this I think maybe even on our first episode Joel was there's this idea of being 
confidently Christian, mm. holding fast to the truth that we've been told, um, and that that truth shapes our lives. So it shapes the way that we uh, react, like that we live personally in our relationships with our family, in the relationships with our communities, um, and that that uh, Paul talks about shining like stars in the universe, which picks up. I think some of the imagery that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount about salt and light, um, the city on the hill, all these kinds of things. Um, but it's, it's interesting that when Paul is talking to the churches, he's, just, he's concerned about how they're acting amongst themselves. Um, and yet what we see through church history is that when the churches were living faithfully amongst themselves, that that did have that effect. And the mo- mm. one of the most obvious examples from the ancient Roman Empire mm. was the fact that it was really normal for um, Greek culture and Roman culture to put unwanted babies just out in the street and just let them be die of exposure. Um, and the Jews, uh, as well as the early Christian churches as well, would say, well, that's not how God wants us to live. And actually we have capacity to love our neighbours as ourselves. So not only do we look after our own children and not expose them to nature to die, but we'll actually take in the children of others. And that was one of the most striking examples where the Christians, they weren't politically active. They weren't you know, sending delegates to Caesar to try and argue for their rights and to you know, um, make you know, diplomatic or democratic type statements. They just they were living authentically, confidently Christian. Um, they knew that that had impact on the way that how they lived their life. And it then did change society. Um, and we've talked before, I think, of Tom Holland's book, Dominion, um, which I haven't read, but I've heard a lot about and a lot of commentary and listened to him speak a lot about it. But there's this idea that you can actually trace through um, uh, certainly sort of Western culture, European culture, um, but elsewhere as well, where you've actually got this Christianity, Christians just living authentically as a Jesus-shaped community is actually impacting the wider culture, not because that's their first priority. Their first priority is following Jesus. But because they're living as authentically Christian, because they're following Jesus, of course that has outside influence. Mm. And so one of the, the things I notice when we talk about these politically active evangelicals or fundamentalists is my question is, have you got the order the wrong way around? That they're prioritizing political engagement at the expense of discipleship whereas the evangelicals are saying no no we're going to stick with discipleship and for people like john stott who's writing issues facing christians today and larry norman who's writing the great american novel and um, billy graham who talks against communism and he talks um, against segregation and he's on platforms with um, martin luther king jr and others like that They're, they're saying that because of our discipleship and commitment to jesus it has implications personally relationally family and socially but they're not the priority. The political activism is not the priority. The priority is being authentic disciples of Jesus and just allowing that to be the salt and the light shining out into the community. And it's when they try and take active political agendas that things to go askew. Um, and as we've seen in, in Scope's monkey trial, we see with this um, Twisted Sister case that actually it doesn't have the effect that they want anyway and they lose the cultural credibility Um, that they were trying to regain and and this sort of protectionist kind of idea of like, oh, we've got to keep um, culture Christian, Um, whereas the evangelicals are saying, no, 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 we've got to follow Jesus. Um, And that's where the power, in the culture, um, because we are, again, from the New Testament, we're we're in this world, but not of this world. Mm. And as we 
toe that line as we, as we live as disciples in culture, that's where change does seem mm. to happen. It's almost like it, it feels like uh, it almost leads us to, if we disengage with culture so much, it leads us, if we fail to be the compassionate Christians that Jesus calls us to be. But do you agree with that? Look, I think people have lots of good motives for becoming mm. politically active. And, and I think what the three of us are saying today is that Christians can have political part of their life. Like, yep. we all vote at elections. People, Christians go to demonstrations. Christians, um, you know, are involved with pressuring their local members on different issues. I think all that stuff's really good. Um, you know, there's prominent examples of evangelicals in history who not, uh, you know, that shied away from really important issues like Wilberforce and, and those evangelicals of that generation were the first um, to bring about the abolishment of slavery. That was a massive thing. But I think even Wilberforce would say, yes, as important as ending slavery is, there's, a, there's an even more important agenda that I have, which is that people would meet Christ and would have eternal freedom from from the bondage to sin. So that that's what I think Tim articulated so beautifully there and it's really yeah. important because I think you see as when, when culture changes dramatically in the 20s uh, in the 60s I think we'll come back to the teens and talk about the, the, the phenomena of Donald Trump and make America great again and all these evangelical leaders who come out and publicly endorse Donald Trump that's a fundamentalist impulse and an impulse of wow this culture is getting out of control we need to act politically to, to put the brakes on this and again the the subtle message is it's not that we're saying that evangelicals don't have any political impulse but they're that as tim said really carefully it's the it's secondary to continuing to preach the gospel and yeah. helping people to come to know jesus yeah i think that's and really that's good. why we have this season of whatever happened to evangelism because we're trying to recapture that one not recapture but we're trying to really walk in line with that evangelical line mm. through history of Let's declare the gospel as Jesus did in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. I've come uh, to bring in the kingdom of heaven um, and the good news, repent and believe the good news, you know. So that's that's what we're trying to continue yeah. to maintain mm. as the major way of um, moving forward, yeah. Yeah, no, I really love that. You Both you guys have articulated that. That's really cool. Um, the, we talk about a lot of uh, 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 figures amongst the history that we've looked at. And I was just wondering, do you want to, um, uh, Stu, especially talk about Francis Schaeffer? Because he, he was someone that was quite important between this time of the 60s and 80s. And I know that you've studied him quite a, yeah. quite a bit. Well, I was thinking, actually, uh, Joel, that's a really good um, place to kind of to, to end with to go into next week. Because we're going to look at this idea of propositional evangelism. Um, in Sydney, there are some key leaders like Philip Jensen, uh, John Chapman, and others who are really um, developing evangelistic approaches that are um, attempting to continue to reach out to this changing culture. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you get someone like Schaefer, it would be a really great thing to come back to him again next episode, I reckon, and start there. Because in 1984, he wrote a book called The Great Evangelical Disaster. And that was his last book, and he, was, uh, he died that year. Um, Schaefer was a, a man who started a ministry with his wife Edith in Le, uh, called Labrie in mm. Switzerland. Mm. And the idea was to go to uh, war-torn Europe and help them to rebuild after the Second World War. But very quickly he found he and Edith had a really powerful ministry to the baby boomer generation who were going through all the idea changes of the 60s. And he wrote a series of books about 
giving an evangelical response to a lot of the, uh, the rising issues. But his um, overall focus by 1984, which again, like I said, we could start with next week, is he's saying, you know, one of the problems for evangelicals is we haven't given people the why. Uh, what we've done is we've just given moral answers to moral problems, but we haven't said why we have those morals. So, for example, he would argue that in a nuclear family in America, that the parents would probably bring their kids up saying that uh, they wanted them to wait until they were married before they became sexually active. And the kids who now have the pill are saying why. Schaefer's um, uh, analysis of that is a lot of the parents didn't know why. They just said, well, as Christians, you don't have sex mm. before you get married. And so because there's no why, the kids reject it. So his, his feeling is that, he, and again, he's done a similar project to what we're doing on this, uh, although far more in depth than <laughs> what we've been doing, but go through the history of evangelicalism and look at how reason and faith have been, you know, in the battle of ideas has been transposed across, you know, centuries. And his argument is by the 20th century, a lot of evangelicals just have moral teaching without the why, the why. which is Jesus, which is the yeah. gospel. So even though we're saying evangelicals are the ones with the gospel, um, maybe he's arguing that a lot of the problems we've seen with the moral majority, that's a big moral response to society, for example. Uh, he would say a fundamentalist response to um, changing culture is a moral response, just saying, well, you've, you know, they're criticising the morals of the society rather than giving, well, why do we have a moral position? What is our ethical stance? And it's all around Jesus. Yeah. And so his argument is the church, the evangelical church needs to re is being undermined by the fact that we are not teaching our young people why we live like we do. We're just teaching mm -hmm. them to live a certain way. That's his kind of, mm -hmm. our listeners and viewers could think about whether they agree with that or not. But I think it's really powerful because if you undermine the reasons for why we say where we stand on things, then people just attack your morals rather than actually engage with the, 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 the why. So mm -hmm. the gospel is, he would argue, that we need to rediscover teaching the gospel really clearly in our generation. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, it's a good way to finish, I think, mm -hmm. then. It's the, the important thing is about why Jesus changes everything, mm -hmm. which is what we like to talk about at Shore Revival Church, too. Anyway, let's wrap it up. Thank you very much for your time, guys. Really appreciate it. Um, if you are listening or you're watching, you can email me if you have a question or you just want to contribute to the conversation. It's joel at shogazorba.com.au. You can subscribe to our email list on our website, which is shockabsorber.com.au. You could just subscribe to the podcast or YouTube if you haven't done that already, or you can jump on the Discord server as well, which is in the show notes. So we're happy to continue the conversation as we always do. Um, to finish up though, thank you very much again. Thank you for listening and watching and one way. One way. One way.